Well, let's, uh, let's open up a prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that through your sweet providence we can gather this morning and study your word. Father, just pray that you would use your servant to um, say the things and the nuggets of truth that needs to be expounded this morning. Just pray that you would bless our time in your word and help us to take the truth that we need in Christ's name. So this morning we're going to continue our study in Judges. We're in chapter 4. And we will see again Israel's rejection of, their, of God and their folly. But more importantly we will see God's providence through this historical narrative. Chapters 4 and chapter 5 of Judges is kind of like a two-act play. Where chapter 4 will be the narrative and how the battle unfolds. And then chapter 5 gives us a victory song. Uh, it gives us more details of the event. This is unique for the book of Judges, but it's not unique throughout the Bible. In Exodus chapter 14 and 15, does anybody know what Exodus chapter 14 uh, tells us about? That's the Exodus from um, Egypt uh, when the, the Lord delivers the Israelites out of the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt and parting the Red Sea. And then chapter 15, we see the Song of Moses and the Song of Miriam uh, celebrating that. 2 Samuel uh, 21, we read of David and his mighty men when he's battling the Philistines. And then in chapter 22, we read of David's Song of Victory, delivering the Israelites from the hands of the Philistines. And by the way, David and his mighty men, this is where he kills four, there are four more giants that are related to Goliath. They're killed during this battle. And then in chapter 22, we hear David's song, uh, saying this song to the Lord. The Lord is my protector. He is my strong fortress. My God is my protection, and with him I am safe. He protects me like a shield. He defends me and keeps me safe, and he is my savior. He protects me and saves me from violence. I call to the Lord, and he saves me from my enemies, and praise the Lord. That's David's song in chapter 22. So again, in chapter um, 4, or Act 1 of this play, we'll discuss this morning. Next week, we'll go into chapter 5, which will be Act 2 of the historical narrative. This morning, as we read chapter 4, we're going to be introduced to some characters. We have Deborah, the prophetess. We have Barak, the commander of the Israeli army. We have Jael, the wife of Heber. Sisera, the general of the enemy army. And then, of course, we have God who is directing all things through his providence. So let's read uh, chapter 4 in Judges. And I do apologize for some of the pronunciations. I'll do my best to, as we go through here. So chapter 4 of Judges. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hereseth Haganim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah 
between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hodab, Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harioseth Haganim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariots and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harioseth Haggaim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. And there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazer, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into, aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground, while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. 
And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. That was a lot to cover there. But as you see, this is a story of God's providence. And as Parks mentioned last week when we were going through uh, chapter 3, is we need to be careful not to read more into the story than what is given to us in Scripture. So as we look at this passage, we'll look at verses one. To start with verses 1 to 3. And remember that there was peace in the land for 80 years, which should have confirmed to the Israelites on how to live and how they should be worshiping God alone and putting death, uh, sin to death. Israel became confident in their own abilities and became foolish and gave into their lust and wicked desires by rejecting God in his ways. So let's look at verses 1 to 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, for they were under, um, they were being oppressed. And Sisera had 900 chariots, um, and he reigned cruelly for 20 years. And we see this again, we see this pattern all throughout Judges, where Israel's at peace, and they're prospering. They turn from God, and they turn to their own folly, and they reject God, and they worship Baal. And God gives them over to their wickedness. They become slaves to sin. And then they give themselves over to that sin. And they cry out to the Lord, and God sends, the Lord sends a, a judge to deliver them. And then we think about, it says, the scriptures tells us that they did what was evil after Ehud had died. So what does that tell us about Israel? It tells us that they have, if there's an external force or an external governance, then they will behave. But once that is removed, they turn back to their wickedness. So where, where is their heart? It tells us that their heart is not truly with the Lord. It's, it's turned inward uh, to sin. And we think about the external control, and aren't we kind of like that today in, in our own hearts? And if you just think about how when you're driving, how's your driving change when you see a police car? Usually uh, it makes you perk up a little bit and slow down. <laughs> um, so there's nothing new under the sun. So it does tell us a little bit about um, our hearts today. And then when you think about judges, it's really... A representation of all of human history, the repeating the repeating of the pattern that we see in Israel. This is the third great failure that Israel uh, got, that we are, as in Judges, because we have in Judges uh, chapter two, verse eleven, chapter three, verse seven, and then now chapter four, verse one, that we see that Israel um, is doing evil and they're being oppressed. And notice that the oppression is getting longer and longer. This was twenty years of oppression. Uh, by Sisera and Jabin, the king of Canaan. So we see this pattern again where they're thumbing their noses at God. And Matthew Henry states that those that throw themselves out of God's service throws themselves out of God's protection. And that exactly is what is happening to Israel. But the Lord in his sovereign mercy, um, he sells. notice that the scripture says, you know, the Lord sells Israel over to King Jabin. So who's doing the directing? Who's doing the maneuvering? And that's, that's God. He's in control. And we see that all throughout this chapter. 
Sisera we're, we're told it has 900 chariots of iron, <clears throat> and so he's very powerful. <clears throat> he has a reputation of being very cruel, and we will see this more next week in Act 2 when we go into Chapter 5. It gives us a little bit more of, of an idea um, in verses 28 and 30 of Chapter 5 of just how cruel and the brutality that Sisera, um, just how bad he was. So after 20 years, we see that Israel cries out to the Lord, and we know that, that those that reject God and their prosperity will always find themselves in need of God uh, when times of uh, persecution comes. The Lord hears their cry, and then we see uh, Deborah enters into the scene, and we see Barak, the commander of the Israel army, and then we also get introduced to Jael, the unlikely and unsuspected woman. So let's look at continuing in verses chapter, uh, verses four through, um, let's say nine here. So now we have Deborah the prophetess, who is the wife of Lip Lipidoth, who is judging Israel at this time. And we know that um, as a God is punishing or has turned over um, Israel to their wickedness and their folly, we see um, the Lord using the weakness of a woman to come and judge Israel. For it says that they, Israel brings their concerns to um, Deborah, and she is judging um, Israel. So what do we know about Deborah? The scripture tells us that she was a prophetess, which means that she was the mouthpiece of God. She spoke on behalf of God. And she was instructed in divine knowledge and inspiration by the Spirit of God. She would settle disputes and hear cases and make wise judgment. But notice that she does not judge by civil authority or like a monarch. She's not a king. She was the first and only female judge and also the first judge who wasn't the leader of an army. Deborah was not a commander. She was not a warrior, but she was godly and she has wisdom. The other judges that we'll see led on the battlefield, but Deborah does not. One commentator stated that Deborah is very different from all the other judges. She led from wisdom and character rather than sheer might. We see that she is judging and leading the people of Israel. The historian Josephus states that Israel came to Deborah with their request for her to pray for them. So next we're introduced to Barak, the commander of the Israeli army. So we see in verse 6 that Deborah sent and summoned Barak and said to him, has, the Lord, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I, which is God, will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you at the river Kishon. And that's a very important detail about where they're going to meet at the river Kishon in the plains. With his chariots and his troops, and I, which is God, will give him into your hands. So what is Barak's response when Deborah tells him the, what God is telling him to do to go meet Sisera? Barak, we see in verse 8, says, Well, if you, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. <clears throat> so let's think about Barak's response here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is he hesitant? 
do you blame him thinking about going against 900 chariots of iron? Do you think this may be a suicide mission going up against uh, the might of Sisera? And at this day and age, in the, the iron chariots, we we're told that they had um, they would put out spikes from the wheels and timbers, and basically as they ran, as they would roll, they would just pretty much cut the infantry down. So this is a pretty um, it's pretty big feat to go up against that ma that many chariots. Some use this to criticize Barak and claim that he was weak, a weak and timid man that he is full of fear and he's not trusting the Lord. <clears throat> and some even claim that the Lord was rebuking Barak for being unfaithful. For in the next verse, we see in verse 9, that Deborah says, Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. <clears throat> Excuse me. Matthew Henry writes that Deborah was the weaker vessel, but she had the stronger faith. <clears throat> so I'm going to give you a kind of an opposite position and just kind of talk about how Barack, <clears throat> there's debate on whether Barack was a, being rebuked, was being um, punished by not receiving the glory, because you think about the commanders in battle, when they have received a victory, then they get the glory. But here, Deborah's telling him that sister will fall into the hand of a woman. <clears throat> but there's another side to this. Um, some commentators report just the opposite. States that it's not necessarily Deborah, that the wom Deborah the woman, that Barak is saying, I want you to go with me. But he's, instead, he's asking for the Lord God Almighty, because remember, Deborah's speaking for the mouthpiece of God. So as a prophetess, she is speaking for God. So Barak's saying that he knew he needed the Lord's guidance. He needed the Lord's providence. He's crying out to the Lord, you know, you, you need to go with me in order for there to be victory. Um, I don't want to do this alone. <clears throat> I don't want to do it without you, Lord. So in an essence, with this commentator, points out that Brock is illustrating that he knows his own weakness. He knows that he cannot do this alone. Excuse me. <coughs> I got a little tickle in my throat. Um, that he needs the Lord's promises. He needs the Lord's strength to do this. <coughs> so, excuse me, like I said, the commentators are kind of <coughs> torn. Some think that it, Barack is being, that he was weak in his faith, and he wants Deborah to come along as kind of like when the Israelites took the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle. And then some are saying that, no, he is <clears throat> he's speaking to the Lord, saying, I need the Lord's help through this. So I'm going to leave that to you know your discretion and how you uh, view that. Uh, thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Because um, to be honest with you, when I first read the message passage, I was kind of thinking the same thing about uh, Barak being of... I do have some water, thank you. Uh, weaker faith, but um, you know, just kind of looking at some of the commentators and and thinking through that, I'm I'm kind of torn on where I fall on that. But I'm gonna leave that up to you to do a little more research and see where you fall, whether Barack being um, strong in his faith or he was being weak, and that's why 
the Lord said that you will not receive the glory uh, in this. Um, so, but also notice too that Deborah said that she would go with him. And any time that we encourage others in the Lord, we need to be willing to go um, and be helpful through the whatever we are um, encouraging that person to do. So he was being faithful. Uh, he was. He did follow through. He was obedient with the Lord's command. Uh, Deborah did say she would go with him. Um, but Deborah also was just telling Barack, this is how the, the Lord is going to decide this victory of that Sisera. And you think about the irony of Sisera being the uh, powerful man that he was, being taken out by a weaker vessel, being a woman. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the story when J.O. comes into the scene. Okay. Well, if Barack's not going to be receiving the glory for this battle... Let's think about this line for a minute when the Lord is telling Barak, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. Well, it begs the question then, who is going to receive the glory then? And one commentator that I was reading stated that this is a reminder of Christ because we know the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Christ as he was walking to Calvary, he laid aside his own glory. And Philippians 2 tells us that Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So as we think about ourselves, is this, is this how you know, the road that we're on does not lead to our glory, but at least uh, are we taking on the role of a servant? Are we taking on the role of Christ? Are we imitating Christ? So... Getting back to our story, Barak's response to the news that he will not get the glory. Did he pout? Did he take his toys and go home? Well, no. We see in his humility and his obedience to the master's call. And remember that obedience is better than sacrifice, Samuel tells uh, King Saul. And then also think about Matthew 21, when Jesus talks about the parable of the two sons. When he asks them both to go work in the vineyard or go work in the field. The first one said, I will not go. But then he changed his mind and went. He was obedient. Then the second one said, I will go, but he doesn't. So which Christ, Jesus asked the Pharisees, which one you know, was obedient and to be honored? And that was the first one, obviously. So obedience, and we see that in Barak. He had the faith, he had the courage, and he had the to lead the Israelite army against the mighty foe of Sisera of 900 chariots. Matthew Henry also tells us of Barak that he valued the satisfaction of his mind and the good success of the enterprise more than his honor. But before we leave Barak and his role in this historical event, we find Barak, where do we find Barak again in the New Testament? Does anybody know him? find him in Hebrews in the hall of faith we find him in Hebrews 11 um, verses 32 through 34 and I'll read that real quick or you can turn there if you like and uh, 34 and what more shall I say for time would fail me to tell of Gideon Barak Samson Jephthah and David and Samuel of the and the prophets 
Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, and became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. So here we see that Barak was in was mentioned in the Hall of Faith in, in Hebrews. But the, you know, the argument or the debate was Barak weak in his faith and asking Deborah to go with him to have that uh, kind of like a a trinket or whatever, you know, something that, or was he talking to the Lord God, the mouthpiece that Deborah was the prophetess? But the main point is, is that God is still in control and God can use the weak things to get to accomplish his uh, promises and fulfill his prophecies. So let's get back to the passage. And we see at the end of verse 10 that Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out the men of Zebulun and the men of Naphtali to Kadesh. He had 10,000 men. And they were up on Mount Tabor. And then we get to verse 11. <clears throat> and verse 11 is kind of this verse that we wonder why this verse is thrown in here. <clears throat> when we might be confused because it really doesn't go along with the narrative of the battle. But being that <clears throat> we are on this side of history, we can understand why. You know, who are these characters that are being introduced in verse 11? Verse 11 reads, Now Heber, the Kenite, which is Jael's husband, had separated from the Kenites, or the Kenites, the descendants of Hobad, the father-in-law of Moses, and has pitched his tent as far away from the oak as Zahanin, which is near Kadesh. So again, being on this side of history, we can see, clearly see the God of uh, providence, the, God, the hand of God moving pieces and people in to fulfill his pro, uh, prophecies. <clears throat> Remember, Deborah did not tell Barak what woman that sister would be turned over to or sold into, that it just would be a woman. But we know that Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, um, is that person. It's also to note, too, that in the geography that's given here, this move was not like a move from around the corner or the other side of town. Uh, this move would be like someone moving from Florida all the way up to Maine. So this was a major move or a major separation. But again, we see God's hand of providence moving uh, Jael from where she was up to this where this battle will be taking place. So now we see in verse 12 that when Sisera is told about Barak moving all his forces up to Mount Tabor, the Sisera calls out his chariots, 900 men, uh, chariots of iron, and all the men that go with it, and they, where they, from where they lived in Kishon. And then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day that the Lord has given. Some translations to, uh, say that the Lord has delivered or has handed. And notice that these are past tense. So when Deborah's speaking to Barak, she's already telling him that the Lord has already done this. So, and then he's going to be given, Sister is going to be given into his hand. But she also adds there, does not the Lord go out before you? So Sister's pride and confidence in his chariots. He is confident in man-made weapons. And Sisera, like all men who put their trust in the creature, will soon be disappointed. 
For Barak went down into the plains, where the chariots would obviously have the advantage. But what Sisera did not know, or did not believe, was that Barak had the, God, the Lord God Almighty going out before him as a great warrior. Barak gave up his confidence in the mountains and put his confidence in the stronghold of the Lord as he would go down and advance onto the chariots. He put his dependence in the Lord. For in the Lord alone is the salvation of his people. Jeremiah 3.23 tells us. So Barak, as he comes down from Mount Tabor with his 10,000 men, we see in verse 15, and the Lord routed. Other translations say, threw into a panic or discomforted Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down off his chariot and he fled away by foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of back to Hereseth, Hagonim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. And the author of Judges, just to make sure you understand, he adds this little point, not a man was left, for they were completely wiped out. So what happened? What caused, what was this routed or threw into panic? Well, again, we're not exactly sure. The text doesn't tell us exactly. But again, next week in chapter 5, we get a little bit more of the information. We get a little bit more clues. In chapter 5, it does mention a cloud bursting forth, and it appears that there was a heavy rain, and even potentially the river Kishon overflew, overflew, overflowed. And by overflowing, what does that cause in the plains? It caused muck and mire. And what do you think would be a great way to stop chariots? Muck and mire. The historian Josephus states that this battle was a there was a violent hailstorm, and to quote Josephus, he said that the hailstorm beat in their faces. Now I don't know exactly what that means, but I think that would be pretty rough, and it would definitely cause them to get confused, um, and also scared, and also run. So it disabled Sisera's army, and it made it an easier target for Barak to come in and be able to. Um, win, the, win that battle. But now the chase is on for Sisera. So let's read on in verse 17 and let's meet this unlikely woman, Jael. The verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, and do not be afraid. So he turned and went into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he asked for some water to drink, because he was thirsty, obviously, from battle and then running. So she opened up a skin of milk <coughs> and gave it, gave him some something to drink and covered him. <coughs> Excuse me again. But he said to her, stand at the tent door, and if anybody comes by, you know, asking for me, say, no one's here. But when he was sleeping, she took the tent bag, and she drove it through his temple. And then, again, so the author, make sure you know he died. He added that in there, so he died. And behold, and behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera. Jael came out to meet him, come in, and, and then she shows him where she had killed uh, Sisera. <coughs> So what do we know about Jael? Well, she's the wife of Heber, the Kenite. 
And Kenite was not an Israelite, but a Gentile. The Kenites and the Canaanites were in alliance uh, with one another, so they were allies. So, so Cicero was thinking he was running to a safe haven. He was looking to save his life, and he believed that he would be safe there. And at first, it appears that he would be. For J.L. tells Cicero, do not be afraid, come into the tent. And she gave him a blanket and gave him some nourishments. But by the leading of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, she determines to drive the iron peg through his temple. And some may be wondering about the ethical or the moral issues surrounding Jael's actions. But again, just a reminder, let's try not to put moral ethical issues on this, what we read here, because the scripture doesn't get into that. But also in chapter 5, it does allude to um, some of what her actions. So we'll get into that next week. But for right now, let's not get distracted, and let's just try to look at the big picture of how God is faithful and keeps his promises and how he works all things out to fulfill his prophecies. God's agent of deliverance was not a judge, was not a military leader or a foot soldier, not a prophet or even an Israelite or even a man, but God used the wife of a Gentile who was in the camp of the enemy. This is the most unlikely way, but God uses the weak and the most unexpected means to fulfill and keep all his promises. It reminds us a little bit of Rahab in the city of Jericho, a similar situation. Some want to argue that Jael's hammer was a symbolic hammer. But we must remember that women in this time period, they were the ones who would set up the tents and take them down. So Jael was real familiar with the use of a hammer and tent pegs. So the irony that we see is that Sisera was he placed his confidence and his trust in iron chariots but yet he was taken out by an iron tent peg. Also, this cruel oppressor would be taken out by the most likely, unlikeliest of means and that of a woman. But God, again, chooses the weak things of the world to shame the mighty that no flesh may boast. And then finally we read in verses 23 through 24. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. And it goes, you know, the author is telling us that in this last couple of verses, he referenced the king of, the king of Canaan, Canaan the, Jabin, the king of Canaan. What was the Israelites supposed to do with the Canaanites when they came into the, the, the land? They were supposed to, right, destroy them or wipe them out, but they didn't. So they kept, they kept coming up. I think the author here is expressing three times that the king of Canaan, Jabin, the king of Canaan, was destroyed. This is the last time that we see much about Canaan and the king of Canaan. So this is completely destroyed, um, finally, the, the Canaanites, or the king of Canaan. So what are some of our takeaways <clears throat> Excuse me, from this passage? We see a great battle taking place. We see Deborah the prophetess. We see God using unlikely means. Another reason, one commentator mentioned that um, being a woman prophetess or a leader for Israel, that uh, the king, Jabin, and also Sisera wouldn't put a whole lot of emphasis on that or they wouldn't think much about it. 
because it was a woman leading instead of a military might, a, a general or an army, or commander of the army. But one commentator speculated that that's why Deborah was able to rule and lead for so long because they didn't really put a whole lot of stock in what she was doing. So some takeaways from Deborah. We need to lead by wisdom and by character and not by might. We need to be willing to support and go along, go where we tell people to go uh, when we're leading in a godly way. What do we see about Barak? <clears throat> uh, he was obedient, even though he did not receive the immediate glory and victory, but he was obedient to his master's call. Um, what do we see in JL? JL, um, a Gentile woman, in God's providence, he used her to stop the enemy of God. And anything, God will use anything to stop the enemy, his enemies. And it will be the least uh, likeliest of means, a woman or even a, a tent peg. But then ultimately and finally we see of God. God through all his providence and his fulfilling his prophecies, we see God is always faithful and he keeps his promises. We see God is our warrior. He goes before us and fights for us. He's our protector. He's our redeemer. And he can and he will use unlikely means to achieve his purposes. And then um, God will receive all the glory. So that's what we see in this passage. Next week, as we go into chapter 5, like I mentioned earlier, we'll see the second act or the, uh, the, the song of victory from Deborah. And it'll give us more details of God's amazing work during this battle. I do apologize for my tickle in my throat. Uh, any questions or comments before we close? Okay, see nothing. Let let me pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth in your word that it does not hide things, and uh, it tells what truly happens. And we thank you that we can learn from your word. We thank you that you are always faithful and you keep promises. We thank you that, that you are our warrior, that you fight for us and you're our protector and our redeemer. Father, help us to always look to you in time of plenty and when we're prosperous, but also in time of need. Father, and as we come this morning to worship you and we hear from your servant, uh, David, that we pray that you would use your word mightily, <clears throat> pierce our hearts with your word. Pray that uh, you would change us through by your word. And pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.